right, go ahead and take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, continuing our way through the book of Matthew. And as we go through this book, I want us to make sure we are keeping the big picture in focus. Just about any verse in the Gospel of Matthew, you know, you could preach a whole textual-based sermon just from that verse, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, in the IFB world, we're often focused so closely on one verse, people often miss the big picture. They've got that one line in there. It's like, man, that'll preach. And then we just run with it. And it's amazing how many big picture things we miss out on. And um, for Sunday school, uh, this, this Sunday, for, as we're going through Nehemiah, not a real common uh, book people go to for something that's doctrinal, but it's a historical book. But um, I'm going to be pointing out some things uh, this Sunday that it's just another thing where we, we fail to look at the big picture. There's so much that we miss. And I'm going to tie some things in. When you, when you tie Nehemiah chapter 9 in with the Scripture as a whole, it's amazing what we can learn. And in reality, uh, what I'm going to show you, what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to see what happens when people... You know, it, it's a great picture of those who repent of sins for salvation and how it just god's not pleased with it i mean you want to see an example of some repentance and repenting of sins and a lot of ifb they would isolate that chapter and if you read that chapter you think man this is proof you know repentance is repenting of sins and they did repent of sins but when we look at the bible as a whole we can find out what god thought about their repentance and guess what he wasn't impressed but you know most people we isolate and then we end up taking it out of context. And we miss the big picture. And so we don't want to do that. So that's kind of one of the things we've been, I've been trying to make sure we do as we go through the book of Matthew. That while there's so much that we could expound on, preach on, let's make sure we get the big picture here. And unfortunately too, you know, every religion and even every individual kind of has an agenda. You know, that we have our areas where we are most interested, where we're always fighting battles. Uh, and so as a result of that, we're often really good at spotting the things that advance our agenda, but we often miss what God's trying to tell us with that passage. For example, the in such were some of you passage. You know, we've all seen how people use that to advance an agenda. We've even seen how I think people take abuses of themselves with mankind and try to make it like it's not referring about referring to homos because they have got an agenda too. And it's like, wait a minute, let's back up. Let's all zoom out. Let's look at this as, a, as the big picture here. And I think if we look at the big picture here, we can still let these people be homos in here, and it's still not refuting the reprobate doctrine. But again, just we have this culture of isolating scripture, you know, because and making it all about whatever it is we're trying to promote instead of what was God trying to tell us right here? What was the writer? What was Paul trying to tell the Corinthians right here? And so what is Matthew trying to communicate? To whoever he's writing this gospel to. What is he trying to communicate to these people? And whenever we just keep that in mind, it can make everything make sense. All of a sudden now, the more, sometimes more difficult or confusing passages aren't as confusing anymore. What is God trying to tell us? And so while every verse in the Bible can be expounded on, and we can conclude many different things from one verse, just understand to avoid taking things out of context, we must understand the primary interpretation of any scripture and the primary 
focus. And so, while we are going to see things in this chapter that definitely advance our agenda and things we stand for at this church, it's appropriate for us, or and it's appropriate for us to point those things out. But let's also just take some time to get that big picture focus in perspective of what Matthew is trying to get across. Okay, because 16 times in the book of Matthew, we see the word fulfilled, or like the, the saying that it might be fulfilled. We see something along those lines. 16 different times showing things would be fulfilled. Two times we see the word fulfilled. We see it once in Matthew 3.15, and Jesus answering and said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Jesus purposefully went to get baptized to fulfill something to fulfill all righteousness matthew five seventeen. think not that i am come to destroy the law or the prophets i am not come to destroy but to fulfill jesus came on a mission of fulfillment things needed to be done promises need to be kept not just promises that god made to israel but there were some things that israel that a man needed to do and israel wasn't getting it done so jesus came and did all those things we often just focus on what he fulfilled as god but we should also focus on what he fulfilled as man that is a very important thing and that's one of the things that we're seeing throughout this uh, entire path throughout this entire book and so without a doubt matthew is showing a theme to those who were familiar with the old testament and claim to believe in it to prove Jesus was the fulfillment. And so, in this chapter, we are going to see several miracles referenced, and all of these are recorded for reason. And the reason was, these miracles proved who Jesus was. And now, and so we can often understand the theme or main point of a passage by looking at what the Old Testament prophecies they would reference uh, you know, to show was fulfilled. If we go back and look at those. And so Christ doing these miracles was to give proof to the very people he was ministering to, but they are also recorded as proof to the reader as well. Okay, that's what, this is what we're seeing right now. This record, this is proof for us. Matthew wrote these things for people like us, so we would read them and we would believe on Jesus Christ. We, we didn't see the miracles, but we have the record and this is important to understand for because there's all the deliverance people out there too claiming to do miracles and these people have no idea what they're talking about greg locks getting into this stuff and a lot of other goofballs but just a bonus point i want to throw in before we get into the chapter why is it that jesus did so many miracles to prove who he was while at the same time we don't see him doing miracles when people would demand those things as a sign. Think about that. I mean, Jesus is doing miracles all the time. Why is it that when people would come to him and say, show us a sign, he wouldn't do it? You ever, you ever thought about that? You know, and here's why. We don't get to dictate what God must do in order for us to have faith. God chooses what we will do so we will have faith. And God does whatever is just and righteous to help bring people to faith. And just because some clown comes along and he reads a verse about miracles and then demands that you must, you know, God must do a miracle according to his will, that's baloney. 
Okay? That is baloney. And what most of these deliverance churches are doing today, they're tempting God. They are tempting God all the time. And, and people are coming, demanding God do what they want Him to do. And then they'll believe. But that's not how Jesus worked. And so, don't ever fall for that stuff. So in Matthew 4, 23 and 25, through 25, it mentions how Jesus did miracles, but it doesn't give any specific examples until this chapter. So uh, in Matthew 8, we're about to see the first specific examples of miracles. It just said in chapter 4 that he had done miracles. but And, and so keep in mind, some time has passed where Jesus was doing miracles even before these events. So let's look at verse 1. It says, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So notice, first off, the miracles of Christ, they were 100% real. Even in the fundamentals, that's one of the fundamentals of the faith as the authenticity of the miracles. You know, Jesus actually did do these miracles. It's, these are not just allegorical stories. These are real facts. Jesus did these things. He touched a leper and the man wasn't a leper anymore. He was clean. And so, but also understand while Jesus would do these literal miracles, he was trying to give them a spiritual message that in reality is more important. Because what's more important physically? Having your leprosy cleansed or your sin cleansed? Okay, well, I mean, physically, you know, my sins have been cleansed, but that doesn't mean, uh, um, you know, or, sir, you know, that having your sins cleansed, that helps you spiritually, right? But physically, it hasn't changed us. If you have leprosy, that's a horrible, horrible way to die. You understand that? But, would you rather be a leper and go to heaven or perfectly healthy and go to hell? Okay? I'd, rather, I'd rather be the leper. Remember the story of rich man and Lazarus. So the thing is, Jesus had something better that he wanted to give these people, and that's cleansing from their sin. So he would do miracles like cleansing a leper because, I mean, good night. If a man can cleanse a leper, which nobody can do that, then you know what? If he claims that he can cleanse sin, he could probably do that too. And people must believe that. This is very important. And so Jesus' ability to cleanse a leper proves to us. It proved to the people who saw the miracle. It proved to the leper that he can cleanse from sin. And notice, and we're not going to take time to go through this, but notice how Jesus said to go show thyself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So keep, keep that in mind because wasn't it Jesus who was accused of going against the law at the time? But yet those things of the law didn't cleanse that leper. Jesus cleansed the leper. But what did Jesus tell that man to do? Go offer the gift commanded by Moses. And if you go to Leviticus 14, it gives the specifics on that. There's a whole bunch of specifics in the law about what a leper is supposed to do if it was somebody who was like in the early stages or whatever and they, they were cleansed of it. There was an offering that they would give. There were things that the priests had to do. And so he said as a testimony to them. You know why? Because Jesus wanted these priests to understand who he was too. He wanted that man to go tell these priests, 
what he had done. So understand, while they were still under that system, Jesus was still honoring that. He's telling them, go show yourself to the priests. You have the story of the ten lepers, where you know they all go their way to show themselves to the priest, but not the Samaritan. You know why? He wasn't allowed to go to the priest. But you know what he did? He actually did something better. He went to the high priest. He went to Jesus Christ. And you know what he did? He offered him praise. He offered him thanks for what he had done. And there's a, there's a great message right there. So this shows Jesus is still honoring the law. He's not an enemy of it. So notice too how Christ allowed this leper to come to him and worship him. Okay? Now think about this too because a leper under the law is someone who's unclean. He's somebody who's got to be separated from the people. He can't go to the temple. He can't go to the tabernacle. He can't offer these gifts. He can't do the things that other people can do. He's too unclean. But notice how Jesus accepted worship from this man. Not only, and, and that's significant. One, because it proves he's God. We don't see angels. They didn't accept worship when they would give it to, when people would give it to him. Jesus did accept worship. So that shows who he was, but he also accepted worship from somebody who would have been considered unworthy of worshiping in the temple, worshiping in the house of the Lord. He's accepting worship. He's accepting the worship from somebody who the things of the law would have kept him away from the house of the Lord. And that right there, that's good news for all of us because at one time, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants and promises. We were without hope uh, in, in the world. We weren't able to go and do those things. And Jesus, we understand how he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. And he nailed them to his cross. And so us watching Jesus accept this worship from a leper, you know what? That's a reminder to us that we can come to him. He will accept us. And that's why he said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus would accept the worst of the worst. And a leper, I mean, that physically speaking too, is a disgusting thing. A disgusting person that no one would want to be around. But Jesus accepted that because he has the power to cleanse. And so there's a great message there. We could preach just on that. So verse 5, it says, and notice too, I just want to, want to throw this out there too. Did you know too, Jesus cleansed the leper and then told him to go follow the law, didn't he? He didn't make him go follow the law first. He didn't say, hey, go offer, go, go to the priest and then you'll be healed. No, he cleansed them and then he told him to go offer the gift that Moses wrote about. And understand, that's what happens when we get saved too. He saves us right away. And then he tells us, now go do something. Go do some good works. Go and sin no more. That's how it works. So just that's another message right there. You can preach with that. So verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say unto this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. So, a couple things. First, we have a leper, another unacceptable, another one disqualified from the things of the temple. We see him coming to Christ being accepted. 
we have a centurion. We have a Gentile coming to Christ and, and asking Him to heal His servant. Probably another Gentile. And Jesus also accepts this man as well. We kind of are seeing a theme here of Jesus accepting these outcasts, which is, which is what He does. But notice too how this centurion, he's like, I'm not worthy. You know, that leper knew he wasn't worthy of anything. This centurion understands he's not, he's not worthy of Jesus. I'm not worthy you should come under my roof. But this man, he had so much faith, he understood how things work. He's like, listen, I have authority. I can tell my servant, go do something. And he goes and he does it. And Lord, with the power that you have, you could just speak the word and it would be done. And Jesus marveled at this. It's like, I have not found this kind of faith in Israel. The faith that Jesus was looking for was something that he, could, he couldn't find in Israel, but he would find it with Gentiles all the time. Which is another reason we see a great movement in the book of Acts with Gentiles. And we just see hostility and fighting from the Jews constantly. Jesus, Jesus was amazed. This was a reminder that all faith is not equal. There are those with greater faith than others and those who have greater faith than others. They don't have more salvation than everybody else, but they do, they, you can see greater things. If you, have, if, uh, if you have greater faith, you can see greater works done in your life. And none of us have an excuse to not have great faith. There's, there's no reason for that because we have the record of all these miracles. Not only that, and something I, I need to do some preaching on, I think one of the most neglected things when it comes to theology, we have got such this intellectual, fact-based mentality when it comes to all things theological, no one ever wants to factor in the Holy Spirit. And folks, you can't leave the Holy Spirit out of anything. The Holy Spirit is one, He is one of the biggest reasons we know we're saved. He dwells in us. But how do we intellectually prove that to other people? You don't have to. But when it comes to assurance of salvation, I just need to assure myself I'm saved. I don't need to assure everybody else. But one of the reasons, one of the biggest proofs that we will never lose our salvation is the Holy Spirit. Everybody's always coming up with these, well, what about this? What about this? Have you forgotten about the Holy Spirit? He's a part of salvation. And there, there's so many theological issues, questions and foolishness that's coming up. And it's like, and, and you'll listen to people talk about these things and debate these things. And it's like, nobody's talking about the Holy Spirit. He is a part of this scenario. He is a major part of this scenario. But we do. We're always just arguing about facts with different people over stupidity. And if we would just realize, wait a minute, we're leaving out the most important element of this whole conversation, and that is the Holy Spirit's involvement. And if you, if you involve Him in the equation, then we'll realize how stupid these other conversations we're having are. And so, I, uh, remind me to preach on some of that pretty soon, because this is, this is important stuff. I've been meaning to get to that at some point. But this, this man, he, did, he understood you know, who Jesus was, and he, he had great faith. Jesus marveled. And, and so... You know, having great faith too, this doesn't mean we can now make salvation hard. But we would all agree, one must actually believe in order to be saved. You know, you do have to believe and those who have greater faith will see greater miracles or they will be used of God in a greater way. So, 
Uh, uh, verse 11 says, And I say unto you, this is after he see, points out this great faith of this Gentile, that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. And so without a doubt, Jesus is using this centurion as a testimony against Israel. It's kind of like what Jesus did uh, with, um, I think it was Capernaum, where, where he was like, you know, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against city. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And yet a greater than Jonah is here and they weren't repenting. And so here he's just showing too that if those people in Nineveh got right with Jonah preaching, you all have no excuse. You can't blame the preacher here. Jesus is greater than Jonah. If you won't repent at the preaching of Jesus, nothing's going to change your mind. And so it was a testimony against them. And so Israel, they like to make these excuses for why they don't have all these have this faith. And they're always the ones that are demanding Jesus do a sign or something like that. But here you have this centurion who is like, I don't even need you. Lord, you don't even have to come under my roof. You just say the word and it will get done. This was a testimony against Israel. Israel was without excuse. And so who were these children of the kingdom that Jesus referred to that was going to be cast into outer darkness and there was going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, I think we all know here. It was the Jews. That's what he's talking about. The Jews had the kingdom. They had the kingdom. It, it did not mean they were saved. I've said this before through this series, and I'll be saying it again. The Jews had the kingdom. To them were committed the oracles of God. They had the things of the temple. The Levites had the priesthood. Did it mean they were all saved? No. Hophni and Phinehas, they were the sons of the high priest, and the Bible says they were sons of Belial. But it didn't change the fact that the things that they were doing were ordained of God and they did a bad job. They caused people to abhor the offering of God because of the job that they did. But either way, it was who God ordained for that time. Did not mean they were all saved. And so Israel, the people Jesus was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Israel. They are the people of God. Does not mean they're saved. Always remember that when people want to come along and use stuff from the Gospels about Israel losing the kingdom to prove that you can lose your salvation, that is wrong. That is not rightly dividing the Scripture. And I hate using. I don't. I, and I hope you understand when I say rightly dividing. I'm not meaning it like the dispensationalists either. I'm saying no. They have no idea what was going on. They don't understand the Old Testament economy, and they don't understand the New Testament economy. They don't. They don't understand either. So Israel. They were without excuse. The Jews had the kingdom. And so they, uh, they had the temple. They had the covenants. They had these things. But at the same time, when that kingdom comes, when that resurrection, when the regeneration comes, he's saying that men like the centurion, he is going to sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in that kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, okay, the who are the children? It was the Jews at that time. They were the children of that kingdom. He's saying, you're going to be cast out. You're not, you're not going to be a part of it. More proof of this, Luke uh, 13, 22. 
And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many I say unto you will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the, to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and are drunk in thy presence, as thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Who is he talking to there? He's talking to the Jews. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. So, without a doubt, he's talking to the Jews here and he's telling them, you are going to be cast out. I just had a guy again this week, thanks to Israel worshiping nutjob preachers who are always like, the Bible says to the Jew first, the Bible says to the Jew first, we should all, all be going to the Jew first. It's all about the Jew first. I mean, just, they take that one phrase and then just make that like Jews are number one in everything. Jew first, Jew first, Jew first. But wait, wait a minute. Okay, what does it say in Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. What, what does that mean? The gospel went to the Jew first. That's true. That happened. That's just that's stating a fact. But you know what else the Bible says? The first shall be last, and the last first. So guess what? Who were the last it was the Gentiles. What are they now? First. What are the Jews? Last. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple right there. I, that's exactly. And, and Jesus said that in the context of it is when he's telling the Jews, you're not going into the kingdom. While the Gentiles are. Men like the centurion. He's going in. This guy who's last. I'm coming to you Jews first. And you all aren't listening. We've got these Gentiles. They are listening. He's going to go into the kingdom. You're going to be thrust out of the kingdom. The first shall be last, the Jews. And the last shall be first, the Gentiles. That's what it's talking about right there. That's what Jesus is explaining. And yet, we still have people today. No, Jew first. No, Jew last. Jew last. Okay? Hey, things have changed. It, yes, they were first. But the Bible says the first shall be last and the last first. So you know what? Gentile first. Gentile first. Where are you going to get missionaries to? Gentiles first. All right. Jew, one to the Jews. I, I, I'd be fine with that eventually if, if one's decent and doesn't worship these people and preaches the gospel right. I'm all for it, but that'll probably be one of the last ones. Why is that? The Bible says Jew first. No, it doesn't. It says last. They're last now. So, hate to burst people's bubbles with the Bible. But I think the Bible's pretty clear on this. So this Jew first principle is a bunch of baloney. No, it's not a Jew first principle. No, it, it, the gospel went to the Jews first. But now they're last, just like Jesus said. So, and, what, and here's the thing too. What made them go from first to the last? It's very unbelief. No faith. I mean, and you know, the first time we see the word faith in the Bible, I think it's in Deuteronomy when he's talking about Israel and he says, children in whom is no faith. 
And so what made Gentiles become first? Faith. Well, what are the Jews supposed to do now? Have faith. That's what they need to do. They need to have faith and then they'll be right there with us. So, uh, anyway, verse 14. And when Jesus was... I told you there's stuff in this chapter that works to our agenda that we preach here in this church. Pretty, pretty clear stuff. But again, big picture. We want to make sure we stay focused on that. And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever and he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and ministered unto him. Notice the immediate full recovery where she goes from sickness to ministering unto them. And then the very next thing we see, those who are possessed with devils. Now, let me just point something out. This is important that you get this. First person who comes to Jesus, a leper, an outcast. Next one who comes to Jesus, a centurion, a Gentile, an outcast. Next, a mother-in-law. After that, demon-possessed people. So it's kind of getting progressively worse. All right? you know, we're getting <laughs> a little bit of a joke there. But again, the outcasts. Is what we, I got to watch it now. I'm married to a mother-in-law. But anyway, yeah, but so far nothing's really changed. But anyway, verse, I, I, I couldn't resist. I, I couldn't resist. But verse 16, And when even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And I believe this is referring to Isaiah 53, one of the most clear messianic prophecies in the Bible. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And so something we're about, so right here in this passage, we're, we're seeing that Jesus bearing our afflictions, okay, that wasn't just something that he did on the cross, even though he did do that on the cross too, this is something that he did in his life. What's he doing? He's removing their infirmities from them. He's doing these miracles for the people. And according to Matthew, that was something that he did in his life. And I just like to point that out too, because you have some people that act like we're only allowed to talk about what he did during the cross. You know, and you can't talk about anything he did before, and you definitely can't talk about anything he did after or in the present. But no, some of these things too, we see it's saying he did it here. Isaiah 53 says so he's doing these things that it might be fulfilled. Now, let me ask you, when Jesus died on the cross, okay, the, and, and get a, let's get a hold of this too. So, here in Matthew, it's showing that he, took, he uh, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Here, he's literally doing that. He's literally getting rid of their physical sicknesses. But on the cross... Did Jesus heal anybody physically on the cross? No. But you know what he did do? He did heal us spiritually on the cross. So Jesus doing this miracle of healing people of their sicknesses and things, this is proof that he could heal us from our sins and our infirmities on the cross because we have an infirmity of the flesh. And we'll probably say more about that in, uh, in a little bit, but uh, let's move, let's move on here because I, this is another important thing I want us to see. Okay, so verse eighteen 
says, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And I want us to pay attention, because remember, the Bible, everything that Matthew is writing, he is writing for a reason. Yeah, we're, trying, we're trying to get the big picture here. This is showing us something. We're, we're learning something about the Messiah. We're learning something about the Son of God. The one who Matthew is trying to show the Jews, this is the one that we were looking for. This is the one that Moses wrote of. This is the one that Israel told us to follow. This is him. So he's telling them these things for a reason. He's showing them something. So this multitude's coming, and Jesus wants to get away and go to the other side. Jesus wants to cross the, the Sea of Galilee. He wants to get away from the people. What's going on? That doesn't seem very nice. What's happening here? We see often in the Scriptures, we talked about this a lot, I remember, when we were going through the book of Mark, but we see many times where Jesus needed to be alone and He needed rest. Sometimes even Jesus needed to get away from everyone. And hey, you know what? This ought to make all of us feel good because, you know, we do. We live in a culture that, you know, we're always stressed out. We're always, you know, having mental issues and anxiety and all that. And I, and I get it. You know, culturally, we're not, we're not real strong mentally. Okay, we don't have a lot of mental strength. But at the same time, did you know that it is normal for you to just sometimes maybe get fed up with people a little bit? Did you know that it's normal for sometimes you to just need some alone time? Did you know that it's normal for some time for you to just sometimes need a good long nap? Even Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the perfect man. If anybody knows how to deal with anxiety and all these different things, it would be Jesus. But understand, Jesus, while he's doing all these miracles, while he's ministering to all these people, he is still a man. He still has flesh like you and i do and he gets tired he gets hungry he gets emotionally drained he gets physically drained and so he's been spending all this time preaching to the people in the mountain he's doing all these miracles amongst the people and now he needs some alone time oh well think about how many more people he could have healed well you know what he's not going to do anybody any good if he drops dead from just exhaustion and things and so even Jesus needed to get away. And so verse 19, while he's trying to get away, says, And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? I can't even get a nap. That's pretty much what he's telling this guy. You know what he's letting him know? It's, it, hey, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. It's not what you're thinking. A lot of people think, you know, I want to get into the ministry. I want to get in the fight. It'll be exciting. It'll be great. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it stinks. Sometimes it's a nightmare. Sometimes, you know, there's mountains, but there's valleys. There's deep pits. There are difficult times. And Jesus is telling this man, it's not all that you think it's going to be. Another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. And I think this is just Jesus' way of letting them know that following Him would not be an easy task. And let me tell you, I, so I've been in the ministry my whole life, grew up in a ministry home, and I'm telling you, I think Jesus understood these people. The people who show up talking big, I want to be in the ministry, I want to be a preacher, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, they are the first ones to tuck tail and run. They are the first ones to flop out every single time 
listen, folks, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. It's difficult. It's, 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 it, you know, there's, there's rewards, but there are real challenges to these things too. And even Jesus Christ himself, we see many times where he was, where he, you know, he was, he was sorrowful. He would get tired. Things were exhausting for him. He was a man. He would get emotional. He would weep. He would get tired. He would get hungry. All these emotions and things that we feel. Okay? A lot of people want to make you feel like that if you're exhausted or if you're hungry or whatever. A lot of these things that often cause us to sin. Okay? Understand, you know, those feelings that you feel, those themselves are not the sin. Now, often we do. When we feel that way, we get in the flesh and we do sin. You know, and Jesus never did. But it doesn't change the fact that what he was feeling is like what we experience. And it is. It's difficult. And you know what? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do need a vacation. Sometimes you do need a break. Sometimes you do need that extra nap or something like that. It's a real thing. So verse 23 says, When he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Now, I remember learning about this in Sunday school. I remember the teachers talking about this. And from the time I was a little kid, when I would see this story, I've always kind of had it in my head that, man, Jesus, you know, he's just so close to God that he's not even worried when a storm's going on. He's able to sleep through a storm. But, you know, upon further study, I think he was just that tired. I think he was so tired because that's what we're seeing here. He's trying to get away. And we see this a lot more in Mark where he's just trying to get away from the multitudes. He's trying to get alone. He's just trying to have an opportunity to just... He, he's, he's trying to take care of himself physically and mentally. I think he was just that exhausted that he's sleeping through the storm. But sure enough, even though he's getting some sleep during a storm, what happens? The disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. His disciples were like children who won't let their parents have a nap. Get it? Now, I, I probably can't talk to the dads in here, but I'm sure every mom has been there before where you were exhausted, you thought you were going to die, you finally get some sleep, and then what happens? You have an emergency with one of your children. You know, what's wrong? I need a glass of water. You know, there's, they always have something that they need that's an emergency. They're crying. And what's going on? You know, it's, it's always the end of the world with little kids, too. And, you know, and then, of course, the husband, they're like Jesus, fast asleep, you know, uh, through the, throughout the whole storm. <laughs> but, that, but in this story, what do we see? We see the disciples, you know, Jesus finally getting a nap. And what are they doing? They're waking up, Lord, we're going to die. Lord, we're going to perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, I'm not trying to be irreverent here or anything. But again, we're seeing Jesus in this story tired. We're seeing him drained. We are seeing him needing to get alone. We're seeing him finally getting a nap and his disciples waking him up. When it says he rebuked the wind of the sea, you know, I've always pictured this, you know, peace be still and everything called that. I think he might have been mad. I don't know. I, I, I think he might have been mad. And I think when he rebukes the sea, you know what? It got the hint. And it's it's like... It's like those moments sometimes with kids where you knew you pushed your parent to the limit and then everybody gets real calm. I, you know, I think because of who Jesus was, I think even nature knew who he was. I think he was kind of mad. And I think even nature itself is like, you know what? He brought us into existence and he can take us out of existence. 
<laughs> and you know what it did? It calmed down. And I don't know. That, that's, that's kind of how I picture it. I think he was mad. And you know what? I don't know. But I think after he went and he rebuked the wind and the sea and it calmed down, I think the disciples shut up and they let him sleep after that. Wouldn't you <laughs> at that point? It's like, yeah, I, you know what? I don't want him to yell at me like that. He literally, a sea is, I've never seen the water so flat. What's, what's going on here? So that's how I interpret that as well. I, I don't think I'm, I'm too far off. But it says after this happens, but the men marveled saying, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And what an appropriate question this was. And we know the answer of what manner of man he was. He was the son of God. He was God manifest in the flesh. So it says when he was come to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out saying, we have, or what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? The devils know they are going to lose in the end. They know that. And when they see Jesus, they're like, is it time for us? This isn't the time. I don't know how much they know, but it's like they know they're going to meet their end. And so it says, and there was a good way off from them and heard of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him saying, if thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that had kept, um, kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. And so people, they'll often take this passage and claim it's a contradiction because it mentions two men, where in the other account, I think it's in Luke, it only shows one. Now, what's going on here? Well, I believe what we're seeing in the other gospel it mainly, while it's telling his stories of things that happen, he just focuses the story on one uh, man that was possessed. While the reality is there were probably in this time that he was in the country of the Gergesenes, there were probably two different instances. And it's just kind of given an uh, overall summary of these things that happened. It's not a real detailed account. And it just so happens there were two. Uh, and maybe at two different times, roughly speaking. So Luke only focused on the one man that had a legion, where here it just kind of uh, briefly mentions two. So it's not a contradiction. It's just a focus on different events is what we're seeing. So uh, these, thing, these things do not really count as a contradiction. And so let's just summarize again. Something about this chapter, we see Jesus helping the outcasts, the lepers, the Gentiles, the possessed with devils, the mother-in-laws. You know, Jesus helps outcasts. He loves the sinful. And mankind has a great infirmity, and that is the infirmity of the flesh. Man is sinful. Man is unworthy. But those who will put their faith and trust in Christ will always have healing. I'm just going to hit these scriptures real quick. You don't need to turn there. But Romans 6.19, what does it say? I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. 
You, under, you realize that one of your problems is you are a sick person? You know what's wrong with you? Your flesh. Your flesh is wicked. The heart, the very center of who you are, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know what you need? You need healing. You know, and there, there's a lot of things that we know today about the body, you know, be, uh, you know and a, a lot of things that science has learned. And sometimes people in their body, there's just so much corruption in there that there's just no surviving. And there's some, pr- there's some pretty nasty things that can take place in people's body. There's, there's disgusting things out there. There's some really gross sicknesses and things that you can get out there. Our bodies are, are really gross. When you stop and think about it, there's, there are, there's some disgusting people out there. What happens? You get sick. And what's wrong with us? We are sinful. We are corruptible people. And you know what we need? We need healing. We need cleansing. Hebrews 5.1 For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant, and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sin. So what's this infirmity in the priest? Sin. It's an infirmity. It's a sickness. Everyone has it. Galatians 4.13 You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preach the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh... Ye despise not, nor rejected, but receive me as an angel of God, even as Christ. So notice this infirmity, it was, it was something that was in his flesh. It was, it was difficult. And remember, when it comes to the body, soul, and spirit, we do, we have the soul. That's, that's the very center of who we are. But then our soul is, chooses to yield either to the flesh or to the spirit. Anytime our soul yields to the flesh, we sin every time. Okay? And understand, it's not just your flesh sinning and you can't help it. No, your soul, in your soul, you chose to follow after that flesh and you sin. But every time our soul chooses to follow the Spirit, there is, no, there is nothing sinful in the Spirit. When you follow the Spirit, then you and your soul are doing right. You're doing righteousness. And so that's why, but your, your flesh is sick. You have an infirmity in that flesh. And we're looking forward to the day when Christ heals our flesh. And He takes away that infirmity and He glorifies us. We're looking forward to that day. And you know what? I believe He can do it. You know why? Because He healed lepers. He healed blind. He raised the dead. I mean, He he healed a man's withered hand. he, He healed a woman with an issue of blood. I mean, Jesus proved... He can do all these things. Isaiah 53.4 says, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we did esteem him, him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. So was it on the cross or with His life He bore our, bore our infirmities? It was both. He literally bore the infirmities of Israel in his life when he went and he took away their sicknesses, when he healed the people of their diseases. But you know what? When he was on the cross, he took away the sickness of our flesh. He took away our sin. He healed us from all of our iniquities 
And he did all that on the cross. And you know who did it? It was a man that did it. What manner of man is this? When the disciples asked that question, that was such a good question, but they had no idea what they were saying. What manner of man is this? This is the one who can take away sins. This is, this is the Creator. This is the one who can heal you. While, while these people in Israel, unfortunately, they were so focused on those physical needs, many of them missed the spiritual. But this man that was doing all these things was one who could, in fact, save people from their sins give them everlasting righteousness, resurrect them on that last day so we can live for all eternity with Him. That's the manner of man it was. It could do that. Only God can do that. Only Jesus Christ. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for this wonderful chapter and the wonderful uh, miracles that we're able to see. And Lord, I pray that You'll help us to uh, let these things increase our faith. Help us not to be... Uh, unbelieving and have no faith like the Jews and go demanding you do other miracles in order for us to believe. But help us just uh, trust these things in your word. And Lord, you uh, answer our prayers and do miracles as you see fit. And I pray it just help us to follow you either way. In your name we pray. Amen.